good to see you guys on this Labor Day weekend, and uh, thanks for being with us today as we're continuing in a series that we now started several weeks ago that we have been calling A 90-Day Trek Through the Bible. And if you're just joining us, if you're a guest with us this morning, thanks so much for being here. And basically what we've been doing in this series, just to kind of give you a quick recap, is we've been taking kind of a period of 90 days, sort of the whole summer, and we have been overviewing the entire Bible. And, and really the reason that we've been doing this, we've been saying is because, man, the Bible is so important. It's so foundational. And yet it's one of those things in our culture that's met with a lot of confusion. Um, it is met with a lot of controversy. In some instances, it's met with a lot of skepticism. And so we said, because of that, man, it'd be really important if we just took a period of time, 90 days over the whole summer, and just really talked about the Bible, kind of demystified it a little bit, and really explained how are we to understand the Bible? What is the Bible? How did we even get the Bible? And so we've been talking all things Bible over the course of this 90-day series. And as I said, we started this several weeks ago, and, uh, and now we're kind of getting ready to, to, to land this series, a couple more weeks left, as we sort of review what the Bible is together. What we've been saying as well, again, if you're just joining us, is we've been saying, man, if you want to understand what the Bible is, like what is, it, what is it that you're holding when you're holding the Bible? We said probably the best way to understand the Bible, if you could condense it down to a nutshell, would just simply be this. The Bible is God's rescue plan. Right? That's, that's what it is. From cover to cover, what you're holding when you're holding the Bible is you're holding God's rescue plan. That is to say this, that the Bible is not a history book. That the, Bi- the Bible is not a science book. The Bible is not some motivational book that's full of inspirational stories that are just really good for, to increase morale. Now, now, don't get me wrong. The Bible includes those things, right? But that is not the primary aim of the Bible. That's not the primary message of the Bible. What is the primary message of the Bible? The thread that unites the whole thing is that this is an explanation not only of God's desire to rescue humanity, but also is the means by which God implements that plan. This is God's rescue plan. We said, man, the Bible is very thorough in in its explanation of this rescue plan. We said, really, namely, the Bible explains to us a few things. It explains to us what we're saved from. It explains to us what we're saved by. And the Bible explains to us what we're saved to. And so all aspects, kind of the full picture of what it means when we say that God wants to save us, that God saves us. What does that mean? Well, there's stuff we're saved from, there's stuff we're saved by, and there's stuff we're saved to. And so for that reason, what we've been doing in the series then, if you've been with us, you might remember each week we're talking under these headings. And so, for example, we took a whole month at the very beginning of the series, and we talked all about what the Bible teaches us regarding what we're saved from. And so we unpacked that idea for about four weeks. And then after that, we spent about another month talking all about what we're saved by and what the Bible teaches and and, and some of those things. And now, as like I said, as we're getting ready to kind of end this series in the next few weeks, we're spending these last weeks kind of talking about what the Bible teaches, what we're saved to. What is it that we're saved to according to? To the Bible. I just encourage you, by the way, that if you've missed any of those conversations in, in the past and you'd like to catch up on those, um, you can go check out that app if you want to or go to our website. You can listen to all of those for free. You can subscribe to our podcast if you'd like to as well. That might be helpful if you're looking to kind of catch up um, with the rest of this series. But today, as we continue in this journey together, I want to talk under the heading, again, of what we're saved to. And specifically, the topic that we're going to be addressing this morning is just this, that the Bible teaches us, the New Testament teaches in a very strong way, that we are saved to the kingdom, right? We are saved to the kingdom. Now, now I know that even when I say that, um, that that sounds mysterious, that might sound mystical, 
Sounds a little fantastical, right? Sounds like something you'd see in a fantasy movie or like, like something in a fairy tale, like this idea of a kingdom and all this kind of stuff. But, but the reason I'm talking about and I want to unpack this is because when you look in the Bible, one of the things that becomes really, really, really um, obvious is how strongly the Bible teaches about this idea of the kingdom. Some of you may have noticed this. If you're engaging in one of those reading plans right now, or if you've ever read the New Testament, one of the things my guess is that probably stuck out to you is the frequency in which the Bible talks about this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I mean, it shows up everywhere. There are, it shows up in the New Testament alone 164 times, either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It is like one of the most prevalent messages that you see in the New Testament. And it is probably the message that Jesus propagated more than any other. And let me just, let me just give you a few samplings of where we find this idea of the kingdom in the Bible, just, just for the sake of illustration. So just uh, notice a few things. First and foremost, some of you might remember before Jesus Christ began his ministry, if you read through the, through the gospels, it tells us that there was a guy who came before Jesus and he came to prepare the way for Jesus. His name was John the Baptist. And some of you might remember John the Baptist had a message. And what was the message that he proclaimed? Well, we're told in Matthew chapter three, that the message that John the Baptist proclaimed was repent for the kingdom of God is near. But John the Baptist said, there's a kingdom that's coming. And then Jesus shows up. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus shows up, he announces that the kingdom of God has come and it is now at hand. We see that in in Matthew chapter 4. We see that in Mark chapter 1, that Jesus' content of his message was that of the kingdom of God. We are told in several passages that Jesus went from town to town to village to village in this region. And what did he do? He proclaimed, the Bible says, the gospel, that is the good news, of the kingdom of God of God or the kingdom of heaven. Those terms are used interchangeably. And so what we see is that the Bible tells us that, that the primary content of the message that Jesus gave when he was here on this earth was that he was declaring the kingdom of God. He was declaring the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Jesus' first sermon we see in the Bible, it's called the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five to Matthew chapter seven. What is that sermon about? It's about the kingdom. And so Jesus says stuff like this. He says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because they're going to inherit my kingdom. That's what he says. Uh, Jesus gives dozens of parables. And what are they about? Almost all of them are about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus begins his parables, right? And he says stuff like this. He's like, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer. The kingdom, and, God, and Jesus is constantly trying to help people understand what is this kingdom of his, and, and he proclaims it boldly. And we see that all throughout scripture. Jesus tells his disciples to seek first the kingdom of God. I don't know if you've ever noticed how unbelievably pre- prevalent this is in the New Testament, that this idea of the kingdom of God. Jesus tells his disciples that to enter his kingdom, they have to become like little children. Jesus tells his disciples that it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Jesus looks at Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he tells him, if you want to enter into my kingdom, you have to be born again. When Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray, do you remember what he says? He says, pray like this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Man, over and over and over again, he's talking about the kingdom, and not just Jesus, his disciples. The Bible tells us after Jesus raises from the dead in the book of Acts, his disciples go out and what do they do? They begin sharing the gospel concerning the kingdom of heaven. It's what the book of Acts tells us. In fact, Paul, the apostle Paul, we even see this with him. I just want to show you one verse in the book of Colossians. Here's what the apostle Paul says concerning this kingdom. He says, 
For he, that's Jesus, he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, whatever that means, and he has brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. So you guys see what Paul's saying here? He's saying we're saved from stuff. We're saved from the dominion of darkness. We are saved by something. We are saved by Jesus. But notice, we are not just saved from something. We're not just saved by something. We're saved to something. What are we saved to? He says you're saved into the kingdom of God. And so for those of us who follow Jesus, who are in this room, and I know not everybody does, one of the realities that the Bible teaches us is that if you follow Jesus, that if you've made him the king of your life, that you are now saved into his kingdom. Now, all that emphasis that's put on the kingdom forces us to ask a really important question. And that question is just simply this. What exactly does that mean? So we're saved to a kingdom. Like, what, what, what does that have to do with anything? And how are we to understand that? And I believe that this is a really important question. I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking what this means that we're part of the kingdom because I believe that if you and I can get a hold of this, what it means to be part of the kingdom, that it doesn't simply give us hope for tomorrow but actually informs us, it educates us, and it empowers us in how we live today. And here's what I mean. This truth, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you are now saved into the kingdom of God, has ramif- unbelievable ramifications for you today. Today, like this afternoon. Like this moment. Like in your marriage. Like in your singleness. In your family room. At your job right? I mean, everywhere, in, in your bank account, that, that, if, that this, this mystical idea of a kingdom has unbelievable on-the-ground practical applications. And my hope is today that we can look at a parable that I believe helps us understand how the kingdom of God has ramifications for us today. And some of you are like, what are, what are you talking about? What does that look like? Well, I just want to show you. So if you've got your Bibles, let's take them together. I want to take you to a parable that I think does a great job of helping us demystify the kingdom of God, and we'll look at Luke chapter 19. So if you've got your Bibles, grab them with me. We're going to go to Luke 19 this morning, okay? And, uh, and so you can get those Bibles. I just encourage you, if you did not bring a Bible with you today, not a problem. We actually have some Bibles for you. And so you can grab one of the Bibles in the chairs there in front of you, um, and you can turn to page 733, as you're going to find Luke chapter 19. Or if you're a smartphone user, tablet user, just like Clark was mentioning earlier, you can download the Grace Church app. And there's actually a Bible program on that, and you can read the passage through the app if you'd like to as well. So Luke chapter 19. Now, as you guys are flipping to Luke 19, I'll also just say this, just a little bit of context. Real basic, what we're about to see is that Jesus is going to give his disciples a parable in this passage. That's a, and if you don't know what a parable is, basically it's a story or it's an illustration. Jesus is going to give this parable to help demystify and to help correct some wrong thinking that his disciples had as it related to the kingdom of God. All right, so let's start. We're going to start in, in verse 11 of chapter 19. So here it goes. While they, now that's the disciples, while they were listening to this, so if you read previously, there was a conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples. And so we kind of pick it up midstream. So when they were listening to to Jesus, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. All right, so let's just just pause there for just a second. And and I think that this verse, verse 11, is super helpful. I'll tell you why I think verse 11 is so helpful. Oftentimes when Jesus gives parables in the New Testament, if you read read the New Testament, um, it doesn't always tell us what the meaning is. 
And so sometimes Jesus will tell a parable and then we as the readers are left kind of to speculate. We're left to kind of decipher what did Jesus mean by that. And I love parables like this one because right at the beginning from the onset, um, Luke, the author, tells us this is why Jesus gave this parable. And I love that because a guy like me, I need all the help I can get, right? And so, so Luke comes in, he says, let me just tell you before I tell you this parable why Jesus gave this parable. So why did Jesus give this parable? We'll look again at verse 11 there. It says, um, Jesus told him this parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear all at once. And so what does that mean? Well, here's basically what that means. So Jesus, at this point, has been doing his ministry for a long time. He's coming near the end of his ministry. He's probably been with his disciples for a few years. His disciples have been listening to him teach They have been hearing him. They've been watching him. And what has Jesus been teaching? He's been teaching about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And he's been talking about, this is what it's going to be like in my kingdom. And these are the people who inherit my kingdom. And I'm going to rule on the throne and I'm going to be the king. And they hear this. And now the Bible says they're starting to approach Jerusalem, which by the way, Jerusalem was kind of the power capital of that region. And so his disciples thought, all right, well, here it comes. We're going to go down to Jerusalem, and Jesus, we don't know how he's going to do it, but it's going to be cataclysmic. It's going to be powerful. Jesus is going to come in, and he's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to sit on a throne, and we're going to kind of sit there with him, and it's going to be awesome. There's probably going to be pyrotechnics, right? It's probably going to be fireworks. There's going to be an epic band. We're going to have T-shirt launchers with, like, Jesus' king shirts on or something like that. It's going to be awesome, and Jesus is going to annihilate all of his haters. He's going to promote all of those who love him, and he's going to rule on his throne. Here we go. The kingdom of God is happening now. That's what they believed, right? And by the way, if we would have been with Jesus, we would have thought that too. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and he knew this was wrong. And so he told a parable to help correct their thinking. So what's the parable? Let's watch what Jesus says. Check out this story. Verse 12. So Jesus said to them, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. And so he called 10 of his servants and he gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him. And they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and he returned home. And then he sent for the servants who who he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came to him and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. And then the second came to him and said, Sir, Yumina has earned five more. And his master answered, You take charge of five cities. And then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in. You reap what you did not sow. And then his master replied, well, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you? And I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10. Sir, they replied, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you the truth, that everyone who has more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And then Jesus kind of ends the parable. 
Now, now some of you, if you've read the New Testament, you might, you might be thinking, man, that sounds really familiar to another parable. And you, some of you might remember there's another parable told in Matthew uh, where there is a master who has servants and he entrusts them with different talents, which was a sum of money. And that's very similar, but we, we need not, we should not get that parable confused with this one. They are very different parables because the point is different. And so what is this parable all about? Well, just in layman's terms, let me kind of summarize what Jesus just said. So Jesus basically says, he looks at his, looks at his disciples. He says, I want you to understand, understand something about the kingdom. And so he goes on and he tells them a parable. He says this, and once upon a time, there was a man of noble birth. And he says, and one day he went off to a foreign country, to a far off country to become appointed king. And then he says, before he left, he put in charge 10 of his servants. He gave each of them a mina. A mina, by the way, was a sum of money about equivalent to about three months worth of wages. So he gives them money. He says, I want you to put that to work. When I come back, I'm going to hold you accountable. But then Jesus says something interesting. He says, this guy goes off to a foreign country, to a far off distant land to be appointed king, puts his servants in charge. But then he says, but there's a bunch of people who hated this guy and they didn't want him to be king. And so they sent a delegation after him to try to persuade whoever it was that was going to make this guy king, that he shouldn't be king. And then Jesus says, but he did become king. And when he came back, he settled accounts. And those who were faithful, he rewarded. And those who did nothing, he took away from them. And those who opposed him, he destroyed. And that's the parable that Jesus gave. Now, that, I don't know about you, but that is not a weird parable. What a weird story. I mean, a guy going off to a foreign land to be a point to get a kingship, to become king. What is all of this about? Now, Here's what I think is going to be helpful for us. You know, one of the things that you need to know about the parables of Jesus is that Jesus, oftentimes when he gave the parables, he would begin in the realm of the familiar, what was familiar to his audience. And then he would use that as a leveraging point to begin talking about realities in the unfamiliar. He does this all over the place. And so you look at Jesus' parables. What does he do? He says, well, hey, guys, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who went out into his field. And everyone would have been like, oh, yeah, we know that. My dad's a farmer. My uncle's a farmer. We can completely relate with that. And so Jesus would begin with a connecting point of the familiar, and he would work into the unfamiliar. Uh, Jesus would look at his disciples, and he would say, you guys, the kingdom of God is like a fisherman who went out and cast his nets. And everyone was like, yeah, we we know that, man. I'm a fisherman. We see guys do that all all, all the time on the Sea of Galilee. We know exactly what you're talking about. Jesus is like, the kingdom of God is like a man who is making some bread. Everyone's like, yeah, we do that every day. We know exactly what you're talking about. So the question is, what would have been familiar to Jesus' audience about this parable? Well, one of the things that's helpful for you to know is that history tells us, in fact, the first century historian Josephus tells us, that this parable that Jesus gives parallels in a very, very specific way an event that occurred back in 4 BC with a particular leader, a guy by the name of Herod Archelaus. And basically, Herod Archelaus, or Herod Archelaus, however it's said, basically, here's his story. So Herod the Great was the king over this region, over Jerusalem and Judea and all the Jewish people in that place. And, and before he died, um, he appointed his son, Herod Archelaus, to become king. And so in 4 BC... Uh, We are told, history tells us, that Herod the Great died, that he appointed his son Herod Archelaus as king, and now Herod Archelaus was the one who is to take over the kingdom of his father, Herod the Great. The problem was, history tells us, that there was a bunch of people, specifically the Jewish people, who hated this guy. 
They hated King Archelaus because he was a harsh king, he was a brutal king, and he would oftentimes use his authority to lord it over people. He was kind of a power-hungry guy. In fact, we are told that he was so strongly opposed by the Jewish people that on one occasion, uh, during Passover in 4 BC, history tells us this, that Herod Archelaus went to those who opposed him, to the Jewish people who opposed him, and he killed all of them, killed 3,000 Jews in one setting. And then after that happened, we're told, because of the governmental structure of this time, that Herod Archelaus, even though he was appointed king by his father, the way that this, this, this community was set up and the government was set up, that he had to go to Rome, that he had to go off to a far off distant place and appeal to Caesar so that he could be appointed as king. Basically, he had to be approved by Caesar. And so he went off to a far off distant land to be appointed as king. One of the things history tells us is that the Jewish people so strongly opposed King Archelaus that they sent a delegation of 50 diplomats after him to appeal to Caesar Augustus to not make him king. However, history tells us that even though King Archelaus didn't have the same dominion that his father had, he was still appointed ruler and leader over, the, over Judea and over Jerusalem. And so so here, here's what I want you to get. When Jesus tells this story, all right, this parable, everyone would have been like, oh yeah, we remember that. That you're talking about King Archelaus. That was like 30 years ago. My, you know, my dad remembers that. We were, some of us are like, we remember when King Archelaus was king. That was such a dramatic event in history that everyone who is listening to Jesus would have known what he was talking about. All right, so, 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 so the question then is this, what's Jesus' point? Is Jesus' point... That, that he is a harsh, brutalizing king like, like Archelaus was. No, no, that's not his point. Remember, he tells us at the beginning of the parable what his point is. And the point was this. They thought that the kingdom was going to come now. And Jesus says, it's not going to be like that. He says, it's going to be a lot more like Archelaus. Remember him? Remember how he was appointed king, but there was a period of time in which there was a transition. Remember that? He says, that's what it's going to be like with me. Uh, there is going to be a transitionary period where there are two realities that are going to be existing simultaneously. Now, this, by the way, is what some theologians and some, uh, some scholars call the already not yet tension of the kingdom of God. Already not yet. And here's basically what that means. That the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, has already begun, but it has not yet come in its fullness that we live in a transitionary period of time that Jesus has been appointed king, but his kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. And that might sound kind of strange. So let me show you a diagram to help kind of clarify what I'm talking about. This actually comes from a guy named George Eldon Ladd. He's an author and a scholar in these things. And he draws a diagram that I think is helpful. He said that for the disciples of Jesus, and actually, honestly, for a lot of Christians today, for those who follow Jesus, we have a view of the kingdom of God that looks a lot like this. We believe that there's this age, right? That this world, this present reality that we live in right now, 21st century America, right? We have this. And he says a lot of us think like this, that, that we're going along in this present age and then one day something's going to happen, right? I die or Jesus comes back or there's a zombie apocalypse or a meteorite crashes in the earth or however it's going to happen. We don't know, but there's going to be an event. Something's going to happen. And the moment that happens, this age is over. And now we get to go and be part of the kingdom of God. And George Eldon Ladd, and by the way, Jesus says, that's not right. That's not how my kingdom works. It actually looks more like this. And this is what George Eldon Ladd says. He says, it looks more like this, that there's this present age, current reality we live in right now. Jesus has come, 
He has established his kingdom and he is already king. But there is a period of transition now. And the Bible says that yes, there will be a moment. There will be a time when Jesus Christ does come back according to the scripture. And the Bible tells us that he will do away with the, with, with the, with the reality that we know right now as we know it. It will, be, it, will be, it will be done in a different way. And the Bible says in that time, Jesus' kingdom is going to come in its fullness. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day is coming, but we don't live in that period right now. Right now, we live in a transitionary period where there are two realities that are happening at the same time. And so the existence that we know is one in which there are people right now, and some of us are in this room, who would say, we belong to the kingdom of God. That is, Jesus Christ is the king of my life. He defines me. He directs me. He is the Lord. In that, that, that word, he is the Lord. He is the king of my life. And there is a bunch of people right now who would say, I don't believe that. Jesus is not my king. And Jesus is not my Lord. And so the Bible says we live in this really strange period of an already not yet paradigm. And you see what this does, you guys. I think this is really important because it confronts for a lot of us this fire insurance mentality that a lot of us have about Christianity. You know what I'm talking about? The fire insurance mentality where a person says, man, you know, long time ago, you know, I prayed a prayer. I heard a preacher give a sermon and I walked an aisle. I, I responded to an altar call. I checked a box and, and, and I did that. And so now I know that one day when I die, I got my fire insurance, you know? And so when I die, it's going to kick in and then I'm going to be saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I know where I'm going. But in the meantime, my Christianity has very little to do with my day-to-day life. And you see, what this tells us is, no, 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 it confronts that head on. It says, no, we live in a transitionary period. And that means a couple things. That means that in this transitionary period, this is a period of decision. There is no other time in history where we have the ability to choose which kingdom we're going to give our hearts and our allegiances to. It also means this. It means that we live in a period of stewardship. You notice in this parable that Jesus in this period releases these men. He says, I'm going to go away. I'm going to establish a kingdom. So he doesn't say, so wait here and don't do anything. He says, no, so I want you to get to work and I want you to start building my kingdom now because when I come back, then we can take that, we can leverage your work and, 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 and help build that kingdom here and now, which kind of brings me to my second, kind of my second observation about this parable. I think one of the things this parable teaches is practically speaking is that for the person who follows Jesus, I know not everyone does, the reality that we are now part of the kingdom of God, it informs us that we need to think now, um, we need to think engagement, not departure. That this means that we, are, we need to engage in the world that we live in rather than depart from it. That for a Christian, our mentality should not be one in which we insulate and isolate ourselves and be like, well, you know, Jesus come back one day, so let's just let the whole world go to hell, and we're just going to huddle up over here together, develop a Christian subculture, eat testaments, because I guess that's what you do when you're a Christian, and, and listen to Christian music. We're just going to do this thing, and then let all that happen. And listen, the reality of the kingdom of God teaches us, no, 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 we need to think engagement, not departure. Because there is a reality that's coming that we can be prepared for now. We can invest in now. Think about it this way. It's another way of thinking about it. So this past week has been kind of a, speci- a special week for my family. Um, some of you guys might know, Jess and I, we, got, we actually we have two little boys. We have a six-year-old and a four-year-old, and we have another one on the way. 
Some of you might not know that, but Jess is pregnant, and, uh, and so we're real excited about the new addition of the family coming in January, so that's exciting. This past week, uh, we got to go to, uh, to the doctor and, uh, and do the whole ultrasound thing to check on the health of the baby, and we also got to find out what the gender was, so it was really exciting. And so some, some people like to wait until the baby's born to determine the gender. My wife and I, I don't know, we were just too impatient for that, I guess, and so we just want to find out. And so we went in whole family kind of stuffs into this room, and so I got the boys sitting down, and I'm, I'm, I'm standing there, and Jess is on the table, of course, they're doing the ultrasound, and they're checking the health of the baby, and everything's checking out pretty good, and then it comes time to find out the gender, and she's like, you guys want to find out the gender, right? We're like, yes, you know, tell us now, and, uh, and so they, they do the whole thing, she's got to move the baby around, a little poke, poke here and there, and then finally the baby moves the right way, and she gets a good view, and she says, she's like, okay, I got good news for you, we're like, what is it? She goes, you're going to be having a little girl. And I was like, yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah, you guys can clap for that. It's exciting. And so my boys were so excited. They actually wanted a little sister. They were real, real, real pumped about it. And Jess, of course, is real excited. She gets her girl. And I started, I, got a, I love it. I'm real excited too. But immediately when she said the word, those four letters, G-I-R-L, I started doing some math, right? <laughs> and I was like, okay. It's like, wait a minute. And I was like, eh. like this changes Everything. Everything. Because I'm like, I, right now, I live in manland. If you come over to my house, it's action figures and trucks and, to, and, and cars. We actually have a bin in our toy area that's labeled weapons, right? That's just, we, we live in manland, right? And so all of our toys, all of our clothes, our boy stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this changed. I'm like, we got to get girl stuff now. We got to get girl toys. We got to get girl clothes. I thought to myself, I got to get ready. It's like, I need to get my concealed carry. I got I need to get a gun safe and some guns now. You know, I got I need to send my boys off and train them in martial arts because because there's a princess coming, right? Royalty is now coming into the house. And here's what I mean. We live my my family right now lives in an already not yet tension. I already have a daughter. She is just not yet here in her fullness yet. But what does that mean for us? It doesn't mean we just sit around and wait for her to get here. No, there's stuff we can do now. And this is what Jesus says. He says, look, I am already king. You guys remember when Jesus rose from the dead? The Bible says that he rose from, he conquered the grave. Amazing. He rose from the dead. He came to his disciples. Remember what he said? That's what he said, Matthew chapter 28. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What's that mean? I'm king. I'm the king. And he says, therefore, stay here and wait and don't do anything. Is that what he says? No, no, no. Therefore, insulate and isolate. Create a little little Christian subculture and just wait for me to come back until I'm, you know. What does he say? He says, all authority in heaven has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Get to work. Go build my kingdom right now. And, and you guys, that, this means that we live in an era of stewardship. We live in an era in which those of us who follow Jesus are to live out this reality of the kingdom of God here and now. You guys ever notice that the Bible, what it explains about Christians a lot of times is it, it calls us strange things. So in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for example, the Bible says this about Christians. It says that we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. You guys know what an ambassador is? An ambassador is a person who is from one country, from one kingdom, who lives in the midst of a foreign country and represents the country in which they live in, right? That's what an ambassador is. This is why in the book of 1 Peter, Peter says, your citizenship is now in heaven. You are now part of the kingdom of heaven. You are aliens and strangers in this world. 
That's what he says. This is why uh, in the book of John, it tells us that we are to be in the world. For those who follow Jesus, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. What is all of that saying? Here's what it's saying. You are part of the kingdom now. And that means as a member of the kingdom, you are to live out what it looks like to be a person in whom Jesus Christ is the king of your life. So you guys, whenever we forgive somebody from the heart, do you know what we're doing? We are demonstrating to an onlooking world, this is what it's like where I'm from. This is what my kingdom is like, where where Jesus is king and he's the Lord of my life. And whenever we withhold forgiveness and we choose bitterness and we choose to hold it against that person, we are misrepresenting the kingdom in which we are part of. You see how big of a deal this is? Whenever Whenever we show unearthly, radical generosity, What we're doing is we are displaying to the onlooking world, this is what it's like where I'm from. I'm part of a different kingdom. It's not like it is here. Whenever we we practice selflessness and we consider the needs of others above ourselves, we are saying, this is what it's like where I'm from. I am part of a different kingdom. Whenever we practice humility, see what we're doing is we're saying, look, there's the kingdom of this world. And the kingdom of this world operates by dog eat dog and every man for himself and self-promotion and and unforgiveness and pride. And and whenever we live out what the Bible teaches us, what Jesus commands of us, we are saying we are from a different place. And we show the onlooking world, look, we're ambassadors of a different kingdom. And so, so listen, this is not just like, oh, you're part of the kingdom. And one day that's going to, no, no, here and now, today in your marriage, in your finances, in your singleness, in every aspect of your life, you have to ask the question, what does it look like for Jesus Christ to be king in my life? And how can I demonstrate that to an onlooking world? And so this passage teaches us that the kingdom of God is an already not yet kingdom. It teaches us engagement, not departure. And then one more observation and then we'll be done. This passage teaches us another thing. It teaches us that this kingdom, the kingdom of God, needs to be first not second. First, not second. In fact, first, not last. First, not equal. And, and here's what I mean by that. Jesus, Jesus said it this way. Jesus said, um, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all other things will be added to you. And Jesus Christ basically said, this kingdom is one in which it needs to be your primary focus. It needs to take precedence of all, over all other priorities. This isn't just like another aspect of my life. Like, you know, I have, I have work and then I have school and then I have my thing going on over here and then I have volleyball practice and then I have like the kingdom of God. He's like, no, 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 no. First, over all of the things, for those of us who follow Jesus, and again, I don't know that everybody does. This is the identity that prioritizes all other identities. And I think the reason that Jesus tells us to pursue this kingdom first is because he knows that this is the only thing that will actually endure. We live in the midst of two realities, but the reality is that one of them is more pervasive than the other. One of them is more lasting than the other. And the Bible tells us that all other kingdoms um, will ebb and flow. They will come and they will go. They will not last. There is only one kingdom that will endure, and it is the kingdom of God. You know, history has shown this. Think about it. Rome showed up as a mega power. Everyone thought that Rome was going to endure forever, but now Rome, at least as we, we know it in history, is ancient history. Babylon, at one point in time, had world dominance under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
And now we read about it in history books. And, and listen, for us to think that America or any other kingdom of this world is any different is an illusion. The Bible tells us that there is no kingdom that will endure. There is only one, and it's the kingdom of God. And that means this. That means that, 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 means that this is the only thing that's worth your time, that's worth your energy, that's worth your investment, because this is the only investment that lasts. One of the things that this parable teaches me, and I don't know if you guys noticed this, it teaches us that we can either spend our lives or we can invest our lives. And listen, you guys know the difference between those two things, right? If you spend something, what does that mean? It means that you, you have it, and then you spend it, and then it's gone, right? Or you can invest something. And what is an investment? It means that I take my time, I take my resources, I take my energy, and I leverage that in such a way that it can secure for me something later. This passage tells us that you don't have to spend your life. You can invest your life. You notice that in this parable, that for those who were faithful, that those who invested their, their resources in such a way that it made a difference for the kingdom of their master. Do you notice how disproportionate their reward is? The one guy, he's like, I took your one mean, I turned it into 10. And the guy's like, oh, great job. Now you're in charge of 10 cities. How dis, what an investment. How disproportionate is that? And the Bible tells us, look, for those of us who follow Jesus, you can invest yourself into something that matters. You don't have to spend your life. Look, if all of your energy... If all of your time, if all, if all of, of your resources right now are, are going towards the goal of accumulating more wealth and more possessions for yourself, I see, to warn you, you are spending your life. Because you can't take any of that with you. You know that. And you might be able to build an inheritance that you can leave to your children, but come on, let's face it. Who knows what they're going to do with it? They may be responsible with it. They may not be. That means this, if you're taking all your time, all your energy and all your resources and you're investing those things in the pursuit of pleasure or the the pursuit of comfort, you're spending your life because you can't take any of that stuff with you. It ends with you. If you're pursuing beauty, all of us knows, man, beauty fades. Health, health, it's a good thing to want to be healthy, but let's just face it, all all of our health is fading every single day. And the Bible says, look, you don't have to spend your life. You can invest your life. That means you can take your resources. You can take your time. You can take your energy. You can take the influence that you have right now. And you can leverage that in such a way that you can build for yourself an inheritance in a kingdom that lasts forever. You can invest yourself in something that really matters. In something that will outlast anything that this world has to offer. Some of you are like, man, but how, how, do, you even, how do you even do that? I just want you to, just for a moment, just imagine with me for a minute. For those, again, of us who follow Jesus... I just want you to imagine, what would it look like for you if before every decision that you made, that you had a kingdom first mentality? And here's what I mean. What if the grid in which you processed every decision, and I mean every decision, career, um, housing situation, uh, how you interact in your marriage, dating, finances. What if, what if the priority in your mind as you made every decision was simply this, how can I best build the kingdom? How can I best utilize this situation and leverage it for the sake of building the kingdom of God? What if you thought with that priority first? What could that look like for you? And, and I don't know what that looks like for you, but it might be something to consider. Just take, for example, if you're considering a career, all right, what I've noticed a lot of times, and even for those of us who follow Jesus, is sometimes the only grid in which you make a decision of which career to, to pursue is only based on two criteria, what makes more money and what gives me more power. That's it. 
And listen, I'm, I am not at all saying it's wrong to take a promotion, to get more money, and to have more power. All I'm saying is, what would it look like if, if the first criteria that you press that decision through was, how could I most effectively build the kingdom of God? What if that was first? For some of you, that might mean you don't take the promotion. Maybe God has given you influence where you're at. Maybe he has given you relationships in that situation that are, you're just like, man, I've invested so much into these and I feel like if I was just to abandon them, I'd be missing out on this, on, on this kingdom opportunity that I'm building. For some of you, you might think, I, I, my gifts and my abilities are such that I thrive in this situation. And for me to simply depart from this, that would actually cost me influence with other people in the kingdom of God. For some of you, you're like, this, if I was to take this promotion, it would mean that I'd have to move. And if I moved out of town, that means that I might lose the ministry that God has given me right here and right now. For some of you, if you were to filter through that decision, it might mean, rather than taking the promotion, maybe it means, maybe it means denying it. For some of you, it might mean taking the promotion. You might be like, well, you know, I, I have more, I have more um, credibility. I have more influence if I have this position. And I, I can better build. All I'm saying is, what if that was the filter in which you made your decisions? What about in your housing situation? As you were considering living, rather than just saying, what's my dream home? What if you said, what's the best place for me to live so that I can best leverage the kingdom of God? What neighborhood, God, do you want me to be part of? What house do you want me to live in? In fact, one of the things I love about this church so much is I've met a number of people that I talked to about their housing situation. They said, you know, one of the criteria as we were looking for a house that we were considering was life groups. And if you're new here, one of the things we do is during the week, we do life groups, people meet in people's homes. And there are several people who are part of this church at our different campuses who have simply bought houses with the, with the criteria of, is this going to be a good house for life group? So does it have adequate parking? Is there a nice room for it? Is there a soundproof chamber we can stuff the children in? You know, and, and is there a way we can do that? And I'm like, what is that? What's happening there? I'll tell you what that is. That's a kingdom first mentality. It's a kingdom first mentality. It's not the only grid in which we process things through, but it's the first one. It's the primary one. So I'm saying, man, in your singleness, I'm saying in your, in your job situation and whatever it is, your financial situation, what if you just ask that question? Here's the other thing I want you to imagine. Imagine this, those of us who follow Jesus. Imagine in your current circumstances, today, when you go to your family picnic or, or uh, Tuesday, when you, when you clock into work or when you go into the office, what if before you went in, what if before you entered into your family room, what if you prayed and you said, God, teach me what it means to be an ambassador for your kingdom in this situation? What does that look like? How can, how can I demonstrate to an onlooking world, both by action and by word, what it looks like to be a member of the kingdom of God? What if you prayed that? What could that look like if you went into work, if you went into your family, if you went into your situation with that mentality? And I'm just saying, if you can envision what that might look like, I think you're starting to get a picture of what Jesus is talking about and the radical implications that it means that we are part of the kingdom of God here and now. I'm gonna ask the band to come up and as they do, I just wanna address one final audience and then we're, we're finished. And it's an audience that I feel like maybe I've ignored a little bit um, during the service. And so I just wanna um, just speak to you for a minute. I wanna, I wanna talk to those right now who maybe are not yet... Um, not, have not yet given themselves to Jesus. So if you're a person who's investigating God, you're not sure if you believe the Bible thing, let me just speak to you for a minute because my guess is for some of you, if you're in that place, you might be like, this, is, this conversation is weird. We're talking about a kingdom and it's a little bit freaky and honestly, I don't know what I think about all this kind of stuff. And if that's the case, that's totally cool. Um, but, but here, let me just kind of make it a little more practical for you. Um, I just want you to think about it this way, all right? 
The truth is, whether you want to use this terminology or not, something is the king of your heart. Something is king in your life. Something calls the shots. Someone has authority, right? And, and that might be you. you. You might be the one that calls the shots. It, calls in your, it might be the culture. And so you just might, whatever the culture says, is what's, I'm going to do that. It might be some voice that you heard from your childhood or some voice that's speaking to you, telling you that this is the way to success. This is what it means. But the truth is, all of us do have a king of our heart. And I would just challenge you, if you're a person that's investigating Jesus, Jesus might not be the king of your heart, but I want to challenge you to identify who is. Who is. And then I want you to simply ask this question. Are they a worthwhile, uh, are they a worthwhile king? Are, are they worthy of that position. And I want to argue to you that I believe that Jesus Christ is the most worthy person to sit on the throne of your heart in your life. And the reason is not simply because, you know, he's the creator of the universe, which is good credentials. It's not simply because he rose from the dead, which again, pretty good credentials, right? But it's also because he's good. Listen, all other kings exploit us and demand of us, Jesus Christ served us. The Bible tells us that this is a king who rather than lording his authority over us, went to the cross, sacrificed himself and died for us. Who does that? This is a different king. And he's worth your life. And he's worth everything. And to follow him is to find life. And he's inviting you in to his kingdom. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you that you've come, that you've established a kingdom that will endure forever. The reality is that we, we for those who follow you, that this has, this has implications for us today. That we're not just waiting um, you know, to go to heaven one day, but Jesus, we are, we are called to stewardship. We are called to live out and invest our lives in such a way today um, that, uh, that we can build your kingdom now. And so, Father, we do ask you that you would help us, give us clarity, give us, uh, give us, um, give us your vision for what it looks like to, to live this out in our neighborhoods, to live this out in our family rooms, to live this out in our workplaces, in our singleness, in our marriages, in our finances. Help us to have a kingdom-first mentality. Lord, save us. Save us from wasting our lives, from spending it on nothing. Help us to invest ourselves in something that matters, something that endures. And Father, I want to say thank you that you've given us the opportunity to do that. And so I pray that as we go from this place, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would bring to our mind the things that you've taught us this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.